Well, good morning. It's good to see each of you here. If you would join me again in going to our good and faithful God in prayer as we now turn our attention to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are holy. You are supremely and only good. You're faithful. You're merciful and you're gracious. You show steadfast love to people like us who don't deserve it. And so we pray that as we come and look to your word, that you would show up now and minister to us by your spirit as you were always faithful to do. We don't ask because we're worthy, but we ask because we know who you are. And we trust you to do for ourselves what we cannot. And so we do pray that as we look to your word, that you would show us yourself there, that you would show us ourselves rightly, and that you would show us our Savior. And that as we behold Christ, we pray that you would strengthen us in our inner being, that we might comprehend with all the saints the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ for us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, Martin Luther said that distinguishing between the law and the gospel is the highest art in Christendom, one which every person who values the name Christian ought to recognize, know, and possess. He also said where this is lacking, this distinguishing between the law and the gospel, it is not possible to tell who is a Christian. That much is at stake in this distinction. Those are strong words. Throughout the history of the church, there has always been a tendency to mix and mingle law and gospel. It's common even in our own day. You end up getting this sort of hybrid thing. Some have even coined the term gospel, you know, because you've combined these two, the promises of God unconditional by faith, realized in Christ alone, grounded in his grace. And then also you have his holy and righteous law, his commandments that we are to keep. And when you blend those things, it doesn't go anywhere good. This has always been an issue. So I mean, if you read the New Testament epistles, you see this. Maybe most pointedly in Paul, but elsewhere. Paul, we've talked about this many times before, he throws some pretty sharp elbows in defending the distinction between the gospel and the law. But if you study church history, you realize that this has always been a thing. The fallout of mixing law and gospel is substantial. People end up being told directly or indirectly, explicitly or implicitly, that they must cooperate with God in the work of salvation. We must do our part. That's how it goes. This is where sayings like were common in the medieval church, for example, this phrase, for those who do what lies within, God denies not grace. For those who do what lies within, God denies not grace, was a common phrase in the medieval church. Or you might get the more common way of framing it. These days, God helps those who help themselves. Or you might hear it stated in 
other terms, that God has done all of these great things. He has made salvation possible. Now you need to go and make it actual through not just a decision that you make, but also through keeping yourself in good standing with God. People are even told at times, this has been common throughout the history of the church, that with the Holy Spirit, they can adequately keep the law. You've got the Holy Spirit. You you can do this. Friends, that will crash quickly. You end up under that kind of a scenario. You end up with people despairing. You end up with people doubting their salvation all over the place. You might even end up with people leaving the church because as they assess their lives and they hear with the Holy Spirit, you can do this. You can actually pull this off. An honest assessment for even 10 seconds produces the conclusion, well, I must not be a Christian. It didn't work for me. We want to take our pattern from the scripture. We want to take our pattern from Christ. We want to take our pattern from the New Testament apostles who tell us we uphold the law and we use it lawfully. And then we also, alongside the lawful use of the law, we herald Christ, his person and his work in the place of sinners. So let's look to the word. Do you have your Bibles? And I hope that you do. Open them up to Mark's gospel. We are relatively steadily and I guess somewhat briskly making our way through this gospel account. The one according to Mark. This is the 14th of our planned 22 sermon journey through this great book of scripture. We're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 10 and verse 17 all the way through the end of the chapter. So again, that's Mark 10, 17 through verse 52. And it's before we consider the text together. It is always helpful for us to read it and hear God's word together. So listen now as I read the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, 
See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I want to consider these verses from Mark chapter 10 under four headings. Four headings. I'll give those to you, to us one at a time as we work our way through the text. Heading number one, the law and the way of salvation. Heading number one, the law and the way of salvation. We'll look at verses 17 through 31 together for just a moment. And I've got kind of three sort of subsections here that I'll try to make plain. We don't need to get ourselves too worked up over an outline. But we're going to consider first the rich young man, the rich young man. Put your eyes on verse 17. A man comes up to Jesus and he asks him 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Brief observation. The question itself is, is telling. It gives us a little bit of a preview, a precursor of what's to come when he asks, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? What do I do? Jesus answers him in verses 18 and 19. First, he says, why do you call me good? It's only God is good. Now, in saying that, I mean, Jesus, on the one hand, is pressing this young man as to who he thinks that Jesus is. But more importantly than that, Jesus is pointing out to this young man that while God is good, man is not. There is no human being, this is Christ's point, there is no human being who's good. Only God is good. Why do you call me good? Now, Jesus goes on. Verse 19. He's going to give him law. He's going to say, you know the commandments. You're asking me, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? Keep the law. That's what you need to do. You know the commandments. And he lists several of them. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness or defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then the response of the man in verse 20 is an interesting one. The young man responds to Jesus and says, Teacher, all these I've kept. All of these I've kept. Not only have I kept them, I've kept them since I was very young, actually. I've done this. And then the way that Jesus responds is also very important for our observation. He does not respond the way that we might expect him to by just saying, well, no, you haven't. You haven't kept the commandments. He's going to, beginning in verse 21, Jesus is going to up the ante. He's going to turn up the temperature. He's about to dump the full weight of the law on the conscience of this young man. Because he's already told him, keep the law. And the young man's response is, well, I've done that, bro. Okay. Well, here's this. Jesus looks at him and loves him. He loves him. We'll think about that more in just a moment. And then he tells him, okay, but you still lack something. Tells him you lack one thing. He says, go and sell everything that you have. Give that to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Follow me. Remember, this man has asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This, this young man, like we all do naturally, this young man is thinking that he can do this. He is coming to Christ, asking a question. What do I need to do? His assumption is, I can do what you say. I can do what you say. Just tell me, and I'll do it. And he understands himself to have kept God's commandments his whole life. And so then Jesus now goes after the one commandment that he knows he has not kept, which is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what this is. He is driving at the fact that no, you have not kept the law. But this is the way he gets to it. You think you've kept the commandments, you still lack something. 
Give away everything that you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus crushes the man with the weight of the law. It's loving that Christ would do this. Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack this. You haven't done what's necessary. It's loving because the man needed this. If this man was ever going to be saved from his sin, he needed this. We all need this. We come asking, what do I need to do? Tell me what I need to do and I'll do it so that I can inherit eternal life. We all need this loving, honest, true response that Christ gives this man. We will never be driven outside of ourselves to Christ if we are not first crushed by the law. We will never be driven outside of ourselves to Christ if we are not first killed by the law. As long as we think that we can do what is required to inherit eternal life, there is no hope for us. And so what Christ is doing quite pointedly and poignantly with this young man who is wealthy is he is driving the weight of the law like a wedge down on this young man's heart and on this young man's mind and on this young man's conscience in order to cause him to be hopeless in himself and look outside of himself to the only one who could ever save him, who's standing right in front of him. The gospel quite literally is standing in front of this man and he's, he's asking, what do I need to do? The young man in verse 22, he goes away disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He knows that he can't do what Jesus has told him to do. So he goes away sorrowful. He can't do what Christ has told him to do and he leaves sorrowful. That's sort of the point, right? Christ is saying, you can't. What you need is me. You can't do this. But he leaves dejected. The disciples, this is kind of the next subheading, the, the response of the disciples, right? Verses 23 to 27. The response of the disciples is telling here in terms of what's going on. It's quite an interchange. Jesus looks around at the disciples beginning in verse 23 and he says to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for people who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why might it be especially hard for somebody who's wealthy? Well, because human hearts naturally love our stuff. We love our stuff. We find pleasure in our stuff. We find comfort in our stuff. We find security in our stuff. We don't want to give our stuff away. That makes it hard for a person who has a lot of stuff to see what the real fundamental need is. It's easier, on the one hand, for people who have much, who are rich and wealthy, it's easier, if possible, for them to love the things of this world and find comfort and security in them. 
That's the point. It's not that poor people don't have the same struggle. There are plenty of people who aren't wealthy around the world who also love the world, right? Christ is just saying, if possible, it's even harder for somebody who's wealthy. Verse 24, look at how the disciples respond. They're amazed at what he's saying. And then Jesus is going to make an even broader, more sweeping statement in verse 24. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Full stop. Verse 25, he just continues to illustrate the difficulty. He goes back to talking about wealthy people again, but he's illustrating how hard it is. It's easier, he says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples respond again, and this is quite telling. Verse 26. Their response to all of this, this whole interchange and the words of Christ to them is, then who can be saved, Jesus? Who can be saved? If you're saying it's hard for rich people, because again, if you think in terms of Old Covenant contexts, oftentimes prosperity was a sign of God's blessing, right? And so the thought is, well, okay, if blessed people can't enter the kingdom of God because it's so hard, and then in general, it's so hard to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus, who can be saved? To which he responds in verse 27, he looks at them and he says, well, with man, it's impossible. With man, it's impossible but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So when Jesus is illustrating how hard it is, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, he could have said, because he goes ahead and says it in verse 27, he could have said, you know, it's really hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's impossible for you. It's so hard that it's actually not possible for you to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible for men to do it. That's what he said. We have seen in this text up to this point, verses 17 through 27, we have seen that the law of God used by Christ to crush a sinner and to essentially crush even his disciples, to cause them to despair. Who can be saved, Jesus? This through history has often been referred to as the first use of the law. Paul writes of this in Galatians even, not in those terms, but he talks about this is the, the purpose above all others of the law, is to show sinners their sin. The law was given because of transgression, Paul says. It's to show sinners our sin, and to drive us outside of ourselves to the Christ, to the Messiah. This was the purpose of the law and the sacrificial system under the Mosaic Covenant. The law was given. The people always said, we're going to do it. And that would last maybe a day or 10 days or a month and they would fail. And then what would they do? What were they told to do when they sinned? They were told to sacrifice. They had a high priest who would make sacrifices on their behalf. And priests all over the place at the tabernacle where they would make sacrifices for the sins of the people. Atonement had to be made constantly. 
The point of the sacrificial system is you have sinned against the law. You have broken the law. You are guilty. You're a transgressor. You need atonement. You need to look outside of yourself for atonement. You need a perfect, unblemished sacrifice who can take away your sin. You need a scapegoat. Think Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. You need a sin offering and you need a scapegoat who can not only take your sin upon himself and pay for it, but can also remove your sin from you. This is what you need. So brothers and sisters, whenever in the Scripture, Old Testament or New, whenever we read about commandments, and we're trying to think at this most basic level about the distinction between the law and the gospel, it's going to give us a couple of paradigms that are helpful. Whenever there is anything that we read that says, do this, that is law. Do is law. Anytime we read and see something that says, this has been done by Christ for you, that's gospel. Do is law. Done is gospel. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, Christ has done it. Now live in him. Christ has done it. Now live in him and walk in the good works prepared beforehand for you to walk in. That's gospel. What's crystal clear in the entire Bible, but what's really clear in this text that we're considering today is that we cannot keep the law as a means to eternal life. We cannot keep the law as a means to eternal life. Now, as God, just to be very clear, we are born again. We have God's spirit in us and God is doing his sanctifying work in us through ordinary means like this. We do desire in our inner man to obey God's commands. We delight in the law of God in our inner man. And we do see real obedience happening. We see transformation happening. And those good works done by faith, by the power of the Spirit, can never be any part of the means of attaining eternal life. Another observation for us, friends, even as it pertains to the gospel. If there is one command or one demand related to the gospel, what is it? It's believe it. Believe it. Like Repentance and faith, like we could talk about this sometimes. Repentance and faith go together. They're inextricably linked. One incorporates and assumes the other. Repentance in the Bible, in terms of the word that's used, is a change of mind. You don't have faith without repentance. You don't have repentance without faith. They go together. So the command, even, as it relates to the gospel, believe it. But here's the thing. You can't. You can't. We're told, believe the gospel. You can't do that by yourself. Only God grants faith and repentance. If you think about Acts 11. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has had this vision from God where God, he sees all these foods that are unclean on a sheet and God tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then these Gentiles come looking for him, right? And then this ends up in him going to a household, a Gentile household of a man named Cornelius. And Peter shares the gospel, the good news 
with the household and people are believing. The Holy Spirit falls, the text says, and it's like, well, these people should be baptized. Believing the gospel. So that happens. And then Peter goes and reports to Jewish believers in Acts chapter 11. He's telling them about this. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. There's a cool conversation that happens, but then Acts 11, 18. Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us this. When they heard these things, they fell silent. When the Jewish Christians heard these things about Gentiles being converted, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. To the Gentiles also, God has done this. God be praised. God has granted repentance even to the Gentiles that leads to life. God is the one who grants faith and grants repentance. So lest we get it confused at all, like even repentance and faith are gifts from heaven. We don't produce those. With man, it is impossible to be saved. With man, in your own strength, it is impossible. Possible to be saved. But not with God. With God, it's possible. God saves his people. There will be no empty seats in heaven. God will save every single one of his children. Third subsection of this first heading, the law and the way of salvation. We thought about the rich young man. We've thought together about the response of the disciples. third section of heading one, call it this, Jesus is no man's debtor. Jesus is no man's debtor. So the disciples have watched this whole interchange and they've seen, you know, that this man was told by Christ, give, give your things away, right? Like you need to love God supremely. You need to follow Christ. Give your things away. So then Peter starts to talk in verse 28. Peter began to say to Jesus, well, look, Jesus, We've left everything and followed you. This sounds like stuff that happens in my household quite a bit. You know, when, like when a child gets rebuked for something, hey, you know, you need to be under control. And one of the other children says, well, I'm under control. Now, that's not to bash the young people in this room. We were all once there. And if all the adults in the room are honest, we still act this way. We are all self-righteous as the day is long. It's an epidemic, man. It's a universal contagion. We all have it. This is how we are. And Peter is no different than us. He starts to talk. Well, Jesus, we've done what you require, right? We've done it. Jesus has just told them it's impossible for man to save himself. God's got to do it. And Peter's like, well, but Jesus, we've, we've left everything and followed you, man. And it's almost the way it's written. Peter begins to say this. And then Jesus says, it's almost like Jesus just kind of jumps in. and It's like, okay, let me just sort of restore order here. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who won't be rewarded in this life with persecutions, albeit. But then in the age to come, there will be eternal life. This is like we thought about last week. It's like, You know, we thought about it then with respect to obedience and pursuing holiness and all those kinds of things, that it's always worth it, right? Christ is always worth it. Same thing here. Christ is always worth whatever we sacrifice. 
in order to follow you. Jesus is no man's debtor. We get the good end of the deal. Jesus then in verse 31 reiterates as he has before that this whole way of salvation does not work the way that men think it works. We are always thinking about excellence and who's elite, who's deserving. Doesn't work like that in God's economy, he says. But many who are first will be last and the last first. God is not in the business of just saving the elite or the powerful or those who are crushing it. This isn't a meritocracy. If it were, we'd all be in trouble. God saves the weak. He saves the lowly. He saves the needy. Why? Because he saves sinners and there are no other kind. Many who are last and least in the world will be first and greatest in the kingdom of God. Christ has said this over and over and over again. We're going to think about it some more even in our text today. Which brings us to our second heading. These will be much briefer. Heading number two, the heart of the gospel. Heading number two, the heart of the gospel. We're going to look at verses 32 to 34. So Jesus, for the third time in Mark's gospel in these verses, is going to foretell his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. You can see it there in front of you. He has said these things before. He's telling the 12 in particular about what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. You can put your eyes on verse 33. He says, the son of man, it's him, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and then deliver him over to the Gentiles. So now we get that piece. He's gonna be handed over to the Romans and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus, again, is incredibly, perfectly aware of his mission. He's not confused as to what's going on. So if you ever read like some liberal theologian that says that Jesus was sort of unaware of his messianic role and he was doing other kinds of ministry, just dismiss it as nonsense because it is. Read the Bible. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly why he will suffer and die also. If you think about things that he says during his earthly ministry, he knows not only that he's going to suffer and die, but he knows why he's doing it. Even in our own text today, in verse 45 of Mark 10, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He's going to die for people. You can think about John 10, where he says that he's going to lay his life down, but more specifically, he says, I'm going to lay my life down for the sheep. There are particular people that I'm going to give my life for. Think about Hebrews 12, verse 2, where the writer of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, that joy set before him is like marriage supper of the Lamb, new heavens and new earth forever. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He knew what he was doing. He knew why he was doing it. That he was purchasing for himself a people who would live with him and enjoy him and worship him forever. It's amazing how many times in Mark's gospel that the gospel writer gives us this, the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. This is the third time in three chapters that Jesus speaks this way. Chapter eight, if you recall, Peter confesses, Jesus, you're the Christ. Because Christ asks them, who do people say that I am? Well, some are saying John the Baptist, some are saying Elijah, some are saying a prophet. But who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, well, you're the Christ. And immediately after that, Jesus says, 
I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Chapter 9, Jesus makes it quite clear that his kingdom operates on the basis of faith. And then he says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Today, the rich young man, what must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the law. Young man says, I've done that. Christ says, okay, well, how about this? And the man leaves disheartened. The disciples say, who can be saved? Jesus says, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. Oh, by the way, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. God saves sinners, and he does it exclusively through the life, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. We read the law today. The Ten Commandments are the great summary of God's law. The first four commandments summarize love God. The latter six commandments summarize quite well love of neighbor. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself is the great synopsis of the law. We read that today. We've considered pretty clearly today, I think, that none of us have done it. We've broken every commandment. We've never really kept one. We still sin. So where is our confidence? Where is our hope? We've thought about it's impossible for us to save ourselves. We can't even believe the gospel on our own. The heart of the gospel is the work of Christ in the place of sinners, his perfect fulfillment of the law, his atoning death, his satisfying sacrifice, his triumphant resurrection, his interceding work even now, his imminent return to get us. The heart of the gospel is the work of Christ grounded in the grace, the unmerited favor of God. Because even the work of Christ could never be counted to sinners were it not for the grace of God that grants faith and repentance. Our hope and our confidence is in Christ and our hope and our confidence is in the steadfast, gracious, merciful love of our Heavenly Father. Heading number three. The way of the cross. The way of the cross we're going to look at verses 35 to 45. We've thought already about how Mark has three times in three chapters given us the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. The responses of the disciples each time that Jesus does that is pretty telling. And it illustrates how desperate we all are for grace. Because if you think about chapter 8, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus talks about his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And then Peter immediately rebukes Jesus. Don't talk like that. We thought about that before. Like, Jesus, you should be talking about glory, not suffering. You should be talking about triumph, not death and stuff. How dare you? Chapter 9, Jesus, again, foretells his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And immediately the disciples on the journey, are arguing amongst themselves about who's the greatest. Chapter 10, right here. Jesus outlines again, this is what's going to happen. He's told them they can't save themselves. It's impossible. God's got to do it. By the way, I'm going to suffer and die and, be, and rise from the dead. And then they start to argue about seats of honor in glory with Christ. 
This is not to slam these men. This is to indict us all. This is how we respond. We are so selfish and foolish and sinful. Even in the face of the plan of salvation from God himself that began in eternity past, accomplished by Christ, in the face of that message, we argue and bicker about who's the greatest. We see in verses 35 to 37, James and John make a request of Christ. They say, you know, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. It's pretty strong. Then Christ says, okay, what do you want me to do? In verse 37, they say, well, grant that we'll sit one on your right, one on your left in your glory. And then Jesus responds with a lot of compassion, by the way, in verses 38 to 40. He's pretty gentle with them here. I mean, he could have flat out dropped the hammer. Like, hey, you guys are morons. You don't get this because that's clear. But he is kind to them. He asks them, or he says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? The answer to that question on the surface of it is most certainly no. Because he's about to drink the cup of the wrath of God and his baptism points to the fact that he's going to die for sin. So of course James and John can't do that. So they respond to him and they say, oh yeah, we're able to do that. They're just demonstrating Again, that they don't yet fully understand what Christ is up to. But Jesus responds with compassion. Because after all, keep in mind, after all, the disciples will suffer for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. Okay, so he responds with compassion. But then he states quite plainly, verse 40, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared. This is my father's call, not mine. The point in the context, I think you see it pretty clearly, is that the request of James and John is bold and presumptuous at at best. Then in verse 41, put your eyes there. The other 10 hear it. They hear what's being said, and then they're indignant. On the one hand, you kind of understand that. It's like, what are you guys doing over there talking to Jesus like that? But then on the other hand, it's an indictment of them as well. Because they think just like James and John. They're like, oh, this isn't right. They're trying to get the inside track. We need to nip this in the bud. It's how we would think. They're all concerned with who's the greatest. Who's going to have the seats of honor? And then Jesus, verse 42, calls them to himself, and he's going to teach them as he always does. He is so compassionate, so gentle. He says something in these verses, in verses 42 to 45, that's very similar to things that we considered last week in chapter 9. He says, essentially, my kingdom doesn't work like the world. It doesn't look like the world. Verse 42, in the world, rulers lord their authority over their subjects. Verses 43 and 44, but it shouldn't be this way amongst my people in my kingdom. Whoever would be great in my kingdom must be a servant. Whoever would be first must be a slave of all. And then he illustrates it by talking about himself. He says, for even the son of man, who is the king of the kingdom, by the way, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and then to lay his life down, to give his life as a ransom for many. While none of us can lay our lives down to save anybody else like Christ. The truth remains, and Christ is illustrating this here, 
that we follow a suffering, crucified Savior. We follow a Savior who came not to be served, but to serve. We follow a Savior who is and was while he was on earth the most loving human being that the world has ever known. Ours is, in the church, in Christ, the way of the cross. We've thought about some of these things several times, but we keep coming back to it because Mark keeps writing about it. He keeps pounding the drum because Christ keeps talking about this is how it is in my kingdom. And so when it's here in the text, we consider it together. The way of the cross, the way of Christ, calls us to die to ourselves and serve others. We thought about that in contrast to a kind of theology of glory that tells you to keep making yourself better, this kind of onward and upward trajectory, constant improvement, be strong in yourself kind of stuff. Don't be weak. Well, Christ says, look, the way of the cross doesn't call you to make yourself better. The way of the cross calls you to die to yourself and love other people. The way of the cross calls you to consider others as more important than yourself. The way of the cross calls all of us to give of ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters. The pattern biblically, it's very clear that glory is coming. Glory will be ours forever, just not now. Before the glory comes, there will be weakness. Before the glory comes, there will be suffering. Before the glory comes, there will be struggle. And before the glory comes, we're called to deny ourselves. Before the glory comes, we're called to die to ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters. We're not called to lord our authority or our strength over people. These truths must inform and shape the way that we live with one another in the church. It's interesting when people talk about obedience and obeying the commands of God. You, you can think about this in your own mind. This is sort of my assessment as I read the Bible and study it. And in particular, read Jesus and then read the New Testament apostles as they write letters to the church. The thing that is preeminent above all things in terms of what we need to do and how we need to live in the church is this idea and principle of love one another and serve one another. It is all over the place. Love each other, serve each other. Lay yourself down for your brothers and your sisters. It's all over the New Testament epistles and it's all over the words of Christ. So like if we want a kind of banner that would fly over the church in one sense, other than like the work of Christ and in Christ, in terms of our marching orders, at the very top of that banner would be love one another. Just a thought. You can wrestle with that in your own mind. Heading number four. We're landing the plane. The gospel made visible. Heading number four. The gospel made visible. We're going to look at verses 46 to 52 and the account of this healing of a man named Bartimaeus. In this healing, this miracle, 
the promises of God are quite vividly illustrated. And the promises of God to sinners like you and me. If you think about Isaiah 61, referenced by Luke in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus gets up in the synagogue and reads Isaiah, the words go this way about the servant of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those words written by the prophet Isaiah, Jesus reads them in Luke chapter four and says, these are fulfilled in your hearing. I'm here. So we see quite vividly that the servant of God is on the scene. He's come to deliver captives. He's come to give sight to the blind in a literal way here. But then we also see in this beautiful account, the promise of God from Joel chapter two, that it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Joel 2.32. We can look at the account together. On their way to Jerusalem, they come to Jericho, and when they're leaving Jericho, there's a blind man named Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. He's sitting on the roadside. Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he starts to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he keeps saying it. People are trying to silence him because they're like, this guy's a nuisance. We don't need this. Jesus doesn't have time for this. We got things to do, places to go. But he keeps crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, how had he heard about Jesus? We're not told. How had he learned even that Jesus is the son of David? That's pretty good theology. How had he learned that? We don't know. We're not told. But this much we do know. That when he found out that Jesus was near, realized this, this in his own mind probably would be the only opportunity he would ever have. I mean, he's a blind beggar sitting by the side of the road and Jesus is here. When he found out that Jesus was near, he would not stop crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He, his cry is, have mercy on me. Just a few observations here. As we read the rest of the account, we realize that Bartimaeus does not call on Jesus from a position of strength, far from it, right? He was weak, he's desperate, he's needy. His plea, as I've already said, is for mercy. It sounds very similar to the publican, the tax collector in Luke 18, right? Who would not even look to heaven, but is beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, sinner. Verse 49 is beautiful. Jesus stops and he says to the people around him, call him, call that guy, bring him over here. Makes you think of John 6, all the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them out. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Even a person that nobody has any regard for. Christ has regard for him. Bring him. Then the words, it's amazing. Now, we're not sure who in the crowd says these words to him, but they're beautiful words. The end of verse 49. They called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. My gosh, 
What better words could a beggar hear than this? Verse 50. The blind man, he throws off his cloak, he springs up and he comes to Jesus. He's pretty happy about this. As is everybody who ever comes to Christ. This whole idea that the doctrines of grace somehow result in this situation where people are kind of drug kicking and screaming to Christ and they don't really want to come? Nonsense. And the idea that people who want to come to Christ are kept out because they're not chosen? Nonsense. The sovereign work of God is all over this passage. And this man doesn't know everything, but he knows above all things, I want and need Christ. And he comes with joy. He springs up, throws his cloak off, and comes to Christ. And then Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? It might be obvious, but he asks the question. And the man says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. The way that he states it implies that he believes that Jesus can do it, that Jesus can grant it. And then Jesus responds to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is how Christ responds to like the woman who was bleeding, to the woman, the the woman of the city, right, that kind of came into the gathering at a Pharisee's house and like anoints Jesus' feet and the Pharisees are offended and Christ tells her daughter, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. This is how Christ responds to his people when they come to him in faith. Note that Bartimaeus goes from blindness to sight immediately. It's not a process. And then he responds to the work of God in his life, verse 52 at the end there, after he had immediately recovered his sight, he gets up and follows Jesus on the way. What a picture of the gospel, right? The call of the gospel. Jesus calls this helpless man out of darkness into light. All this beggar could do was to cry for mercy. And Jesus has mercy on this helpless sinner. It was by faith that he was made well. All of this happened at once, immediately. He was ruined, and now he's well. He was in bondage, and now he's free. He was in darkness, now he's in light. And then he gets up and he follows Jesus on the way. It's a picture of the gospel call and the work of God in the life of a sinner. See yourself in that. It's what God did for you. It's what he did for me. So as we end our time together this morning, we're mindful of the law of God that's holy and good. It's awesome. And we're mindful of the fact that it, it crushes us, that we don't measure up and that we're ruined by it. But then we're at the same time mindful of the gospel. What God requires in his law, he grants in his gospel. We've been given literally everything in the person and the work of Christ. Everything. There is no need for anything else. Will other things happen in our lives? Yes. But we don't need anything other than Christ. And perhaps... One of the sweetest parts of all of this is it's free. It's free. 
not earned, can't be earned, can't be done, has to be given. It's appropriate for us to understand that by nature, we're beggars and we're blind. Praise God that we're called to drink of the water of life without payment. Praise God that he, like he did for Bartimaeus, has brought us from darkness to light into the kingdom of his beloved son. And at one point, as you think about your life, at one point, all of us, by the grace of God alone, realized our desperation. We were confronted with our desperation and our bankruptcy. And at that moment, planned from eternity past, we hear remarkable words. Take heart, sinner. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. And we go to Christ and we're saved. What a God, right? What a Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful. We are aware of our unworthiness. We're astonished by your grace. We pray that we would all see ourselves in this presentation of this blind beggar who cried out for mercy and was saved by your son. We pray for all of us that we would feel and know our need of Christ. And that regardless of how our lives are going, regardless of how we even feel about how we're doing, we pray that you would sustain our faith in him. We pray that we would rest and trust in him alone. We pray that you would remind us of your love for us. And like we prayed before the sermon started, we pray that you would strengthen us in our inner man that we might know the love of Christ for us. What better thing is there for us to know? We pray that you would work and continue to minister to us as we now come to the table to remember and proclaim what Christ has done, to feed on him by faith. We pray that you would strengthen and bolster us Comfort us, conform and transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.